0: I'm probably the luckiest man you will ever meet. I have been given, of course, like all of us, lots of challenges in my life, but I've also been given so many blessings. And I think one of the biggest blessings I have been given is the opportunity to meet incredible people, like such a blessing in my life to be able to learn from so many amazing teachers and to have been told so many incredible stories and my guest today is a person that i just met through a common friend rupi of the doctor's kitchen i'm sure you've heard of rupi rangan Chatterjee is also a friend of of rupi we're we're both working on happiness he's incredibly successful he's probably the most influential medical doctor in the united kingdom very famous for his show on the bbc which lasted from 2015 to 2017 if i remember correctly that was called doctor in the house he is the resident doctor in uh, the morning shows on the bbc and so he's very, very well known for his, his health advice, has the most listened to health podcast in the UK and Europe, Feel Better, Live More, with more than 50 million downloads, by the way, and uh, six million people every month listen to it. And he is a number one best selling author on the topic of health in the UK. Each of his first four books has been a Sunday Times bestseller and an international bestseller across the globe. Now he's coming out with a fifth book, Happy Mind, Happy Life. I met Rangan, as I said, because of Rupi, our common friend. He reached out, he was coming to visit Dubai, and we had the most amazing conversation, had the pleasure of meeting his family. And I quickly put him in that box of like a friend to keep for life. And he told me about his new book, Happy Mind, Happy Life, being a doctor's view of happiness, which is definitely a topic that is absolutely worthy of looking into. And he told me about his new book, Happy Mind, Happy Life, which is definitely a topic that is worth looking into, which will be published on March 31st. It's been out in audio. I had the the joy of listening to it. But I thought you would also benefit from listening to his beautiful approach, human approach. Uh, not just a medical doctor's approach to happiness. I think you will really, really, really enjoy this conversation with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. Rangan, it's so good to meet you again. Thank you so much for making the time.
1: Oh man, it's so good to see you. I had such a good time in Dubai and meeting you was wonderful, so wonderful. It has been absolutely wonderful. In, In the
0: introduction, I was just saying to the listeners that I'm probably probably the luckiest man alive because I have that ability to meet people who truly enrich my life. And it's so much fun to just have the possibility to, you know, meet others. I don't yeah. know. It, it was really wonderful. And yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation and I really was shocked that I didn't know you before, by the way.
1: You know what? I believe in the universe and timing and... I was aware of you and your work. I meant to reach out a few times. I saw my buddy Rupee once. I saw it on his podcast. And I don't know what happened. For whatever reason, I really got this deep sense that now's the time to reach out. And yeah, I'm surprised we had never met before, but I'm glad we have now. Good time indeed. Absolutely.
0: And and the plan to go visit you in Manchester is in place. I'm so excited. I hope you manage to arrange one day without rain. I mean, one day, one day of the year. Right? It's possible, no?
1: Without rain? Oh yeah, yeah. It, I guarantee. Right now, it's going to be sunny and beautiful, <laughs> and you won't even know you're not in Dubai. That's my guarantee.
0: <laughs> is, is that? Are you doing that in public, in front of everyone? That's a big, big promise. I mean, yeah, Rangan, you might you might actually miss on that one. I'm telling you that. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Two months to go. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I want to introduce you to everyone. So, you know, my podcast is quite international. Of course, you're very, very well-known internationally, but you're also quite a big shot in the UK. I don't want to talk about that. I actually want to talk about the most intriguing conversation you and I had, right? Which was basically you're a medical doctor, right? You practice, you save lives, right? And I don't think there is a job in the world that can have more direct impact on people's life than being a doctor. And yet, it's that question of life choices. So when we started talking, it wasn't that you didn't want the impact, but that you realized there were different ways to have impact in life. And that actually it's quite interesting that you could have more impact by doing things that are unlike what the norm will tell us to do. So you have your books, You were on the BBC for a long time with Doctor in the House. You were the sort of the resident doctor on The Breakfast Show. You have your podcast, which is by far the number one in the UK and quite big everywhere, helping people find health advice and so on. And now, interestingly, you have those choices to make right? How do I maximize my, my impact in the world? Tell us a bit about that. It's not like there is one right and one, right, one wrong answer. It's a very interesting place where all answers are right.
1: There are many ways to make an impact in the world. As you, as you say, when I went to medical school many, many years ago, the goal was to learn the tools that I needed to, to help get my patients better. And, you know, you leave medical school thinking that you've got those tools and then you go out into the real world of seeing patients. And, you know, my journey was very much one where I started in hospital medicine and, you know, there was a deep, there was just slight niggle in the back of me always that is this everything that I wanted it to be? Is this what I thought it would be? I wasn't consciously aware of it at the time. You know, in my 20s, I was just getting on with life. I was doing my job. I was doing the job that all my friends and all my peers growing up were doing. That's the truth. And, you know, I did my specialist exams. And at some point, I thought, you know what? I don't want to spend the rest of my life just seeing one part of the body. I was doing kidney medicine at the time. I thought, I want to see the big picture. I want to see how. Different parts of the body, different symptoms, you know how how it all relates together. I wanted to build up relationships with people, so i I took the step to move to general practice, much to my dad's dismay. I might add because <laughs> you know Dad was an immigrant to the u k from India in the nineteen sixties and he came for a better life. he certainly wanted his children to have a better life than he did. And for him, he couldn't understand why would his son go to all the trouble of medical school, doing all of his specialist exams, and then trade in being a specialist for a generalist. Like, dad couldn't understand that. And I think there's a theme here which plays into, I guess, where I'm at today, which is there's a very conformist nature in medicine. Mm. You know, people who going to medicine. We're very conformist. We like to be accepted by our peers. We like to be respected by our peers. And I think that can be potentially problematic. And I'll come back to that, Mo, because for me, I moved to be a GP because I wanted to get to know people. I wanted to, I wanted to build up relationships with them. And I loved my job as a GP, and I still do. But a few years ago, I figured out that I looked at my patient list at the end of the demo, and I thought, how many people have I really helped? And I honestly thought it was about 20% of people. I thought the other 80%, I've not really done much. I've, sure, I've been kind to them, which is, I know, very therapeutic in and of itself, but I'd sent them for a test, I'd given them maybe a medication that would suppress or hide their symptom temporarily, but I knew I wasn't helping them get to the root cause of this problem. I thought, they're gonna be back at some point. And it was deeply unsatisfactory for me. And I just thought, I can't do this for the next 40 years. So (laughs) that and a couple of personal experiences led to me this real deep desire that there's another way here. I don't want to spend my life suppressing symptoms, putting sticking plasters on things. And really my conclusion is, and I've been speaking in public about this for a good six or seven years now, that around 80% of what A doctor like me sees in any given day is in some way related to their collective modern lifestyles. Now, I'm not putting blame on people, Mo. I understand life can be really, really tough. It's not that easy these days for people to live these healthy and calm and peaceful lives. I understand that. But nonetheless, we have to recognise that whether it's stress, anxiety, depression, migraines, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, you know, whatever it might be, most of these things are related to the way we're currently living. Not all of them, but most of them. And so for me, it was a case of, well, how can I help people? Because what I'm trying to do is educate them and empower them about small changes that can make a really big difference. So yeah, on BBC One in 2015 and 2017. I got to showcase the 5 million people in the UK every week and, and the show went out to 70 countries around the world that actually all kinds of different conditions, type 2 diabetes, severe headaches under specialists, gut problems, pain problems, fibromyalgia, whatever it is. I helped every single family and every single patient either completely reverse their symptoms or significantly improve them. In four to six weeks by helping them make these small changes to their lifestyle, right? And when that show came out, Mo, I suddenly realized the power of the media. I thought, wait a minute, 5 million people have just watched that show in the UK. Yeah. If only 1% of people who watch that show made some sort of positive change in their life on the back of it... Well, you're the mathematician, Mo. What is that? That's 50,000 people, is it? Yeah. Yeah. So 50,000 people, I thought it's probably more than 1%. It's probably more like 10% or even higher. So I thought, wow, how many patients do I see in a day? Maybe 35, 40 patients, which is a lot. So that got me thinking, wow, if the majority of what we see is driven by our collective modern lives, then instead of telling each patient the same thing over and over again, can you impart this message in a different way? Now, now Mo, the truth is I, I, I wasn't consciously thinking about that at the time. I just really wanted to make a difference and show people that there is another way. But over the last six or seven years, through bbc one through my appearances in the media through my you know now fifth book and all the promotion and and speaking events around the world around this sort of stuff and through my podcast I've realized now that oh maybe I need to reassess what it means for me at least to be a doctor in 2022 because I think the word doctor or physician actually means teacher right Is it? Uh, yeah, I think I think the root of the word uh, I think it means teacher and so I kind of feel what well, that really fits that sits well with me. This is kind of what I do with every every part of my job now. I'm teaching and empowering. But certainly that's my aim. And you know, fast forward to as we currently speak now where as the fifth book is about to come out, you're an author yourself. I know how many hundreds of thousands these books have sold so far. You know, the current, on my podcast, currently with audio and YouTube, we're reaching 6.5 million people a month. Can you believe that? A month. And it just keeps growing. And I think, and, and so going back to this whole conformist idea, to me in my head, being a real doctor means you see patients. And if you don't see patients are you a real doctor? What will people think of you? What will other doctors think of you? Do you have credibility? This is something I've been wrestling with for the past few years. And and let's be clear where I'm at currently today, as we speak, in about two months time, I will have been practicing for 21 years. Exactly. How many patients do you need to see to be called a doctor, right? Yeah, exactly. And you know, I teach doctors. I run the only Royal College of GP accredited prescribing lifestyle medicine course. So I've trained thousands of doctors now on the principles that I teach. So this is an internal conversation that I've been yeah. having in my head, Mo, which actually plays into a lot of the things that I've been writing about, which is authenticity and how many of us are living somebody else's life and not living our true, authentic life. And I know for me, buddy, I've spent the majority of my life trying to fit in, trying to increase my self-worth from the validation of other people. And I'm done with that game. I wasn't happy playing that game. Yes, I was successful in inverted commas, but that was society's definition of success. I wasn't truly happy and content in myself until very, very recently. So, As we speak, I still do see patients. It's a lot less than it used to be. And I'm strongly considering, is it time to stop at least temporarily and focus on all these other avenues where, frankly, I have a lot more impact?
0: I think that's an amazing way of looking at it. You say that doctors are conformists, but I I would probably say everyone is. I mean, We all grow up to live to what our daddy and mommy wanted us to be it's quite interesting. And for many of us, as we go into the workplace, we start to be more conformist in terms of what the workplace is telling us to be. I start in a career and then I close a couple of deals and they say, oh, you know, you need to increase your knowledge in this and then you need to become a sales manager and then you need to become a CEO. And there is a career to all of that. And we somehow all comply. And the idea is that almost everyone I speak to who considers a different path. Even though some succeed massively and some fail miserably, every one of them says it was absolutely worth trying. It was absolutely worth discovering and exploring. But people listening to that might not understand. So what, what holds people back? I mean, did it happen overnight for you? Was it a stroke of luck? Was it planned? How does someone feeling that they can do more in the world today what would be the first steps they should
1: take? So in answer to the first part of that question, which is, was it like an overnight thing? Did it just suddenly happen? No, it Mm. didn't. This has been a long journey and a long Mm -hmm. process. And unfortunately, and I really hope this is not the case for humans, but I kind of feel sometimes that we have to go through adversity before we learn what is really important in life. I mean, you know, I know your story, Mo, very well. And like I'm sure all the listeners do. And for me, one of those big moments was my dad dying. So I used to help care for my dad. That's one of the reasons I moved back to the northwest of England is to help my mum and my brother look after my dad who got really, really ill suddenly at 59 from overwork, I might add, and from trying to keep up and meet society's definition of success rather than potentially what he wanted to do. So he gets a lupus and kidney failure. And my whole adult life until nine years ago was really dictated and determined by dad's illness. So when dad died in March 2013, there was this huge hole in my life. Of course, losing a parent is a big moment for pretty much everyone. But I also lived five minutes away from dad's I used to see dad three times a day. I'd get up at five, I'd go and shower him and shave him and get him ready. Then I'd go to work and see my wife and sometimes at lunchtime, I'd nip out to help him again. And then in the evening, this was happening seven days a week, most weeks of the year. So suddenly when dad's no longer here, I've got all this time. And with this time, I didn't want to do anything. I wanted to just walk by myself. I didn't want to listen to anything I just walked and walked and I thought. And, you know, all these feelings started to come up for me, Mo. It wasn't just like in one moment. No, this was a process. But the big question I started to ask myself was, whose life am I living? Am I living somebody else's life or am I living my own life? So I'd have to say dad's death was one of those big turning point moments that caused me to stop looking out there for solutions and almost put a mirror up and look inwards and go, okay, what's going on here? So that started off this process for me of I guess self-inquiry, self-discovery. And it's only nine years on now as we speak that I feel I'm still learning lessons. I'm still learning lessons every day. It's not as if you suddenly see the truth and then you can suddenly apply it. No, society is working against you. You are having to swim against the tide if you want to truly be happy, calm, peaceful in certainly in Western society, but arguably in all societies around the world. And so the second part of your question is what can people do if they're listening to this and they're thinking, okay, there's, you know, life's going okay. You know, I'm pretty successful, but there's something missing here. Is this all there is to life? Uh, And in my new book, I've got this really simple exercise that I really, really like. And every time I share it with people, most people find it really, really impactful. And I don't know, Mo, if you're up for it, I could even do it on you in real time. Absolutely. So don't overthink it. This is just a very simple exercise to help us understand the difference for some of us between success and happiness. So if I was to ask you, what are three things that you can do this week, real practical things that you could do this week that would truly make you happy, what three things would come to mind? I'd spend time
0: with uh, people I love. I would write like a maniac and I would
1: relax really, just find some time in silence and in peace. Second part of the exercise is called write your own happy ending. So what I want you to do now is imagine you're on your deathbed, looking back on your life, What are three things you will want to have done?
0: I would want to have written like a maniac, (laughs) written a lot of things. Honestly, spent a lot of time with loved ones and definitely, definitely sort of invested in my own self in a way that allowed me to rise and realize what I'm all about, I think. Yeah,
1: I love that. I love that. And I try not to have expectations when I ask people you know, these questions. But it doesn't surprise me that you're someone who is actually very aligned. You have written about happiness, you deeply understand it. So your answers and those two exercises were very, very aligned. If you wrote them down on two separate pieces of paper and brought them together, you think, yeah, actually, if I do these three weekly habits, week after week, spending time with loved ones, writing like a maniac, uh, finding time to rest and relax and be with yourself, let's say. If you do those three things every week, actually you are going to get the happy ending that you want, which is to have written lots. And I'm sure part of the the reason for that, I imagine, is to help and impact the world because I've spoken to you before. If you spend time with your loved ones each week, then at the end of your life, when you look back and that's, again, one of your big targets by the end of your life, It's a deceptively simple exercise, and I would really would encourage Yeah, I'll tell you openly, I think if we ask most people, their answers
0: will not be aligned at all. Exactly. That's the point. The The typical answers will be, those things make me happy. Those things are the things I want to be left with. And as a matter of fact, another set of things would probably be the things they're spending most of their time doing anyway, right? Isn't
1: that how the modern world is? It isn't this exercise is not about making anyone feel bad at all. It's about awareness. It's about simply saying, "Okay, guys, if you're struggling with your life, do that exercise. It literally will take you under 5 minutes. Maybe under 2 minutes really, depending on how much you have to think." And then it could be for example that on your deathbed you want to have spent meaningful time with your friends and family, right? You might say that, and then you you might go, "Yeah, I want to do that each week, but Man, I'm working so hard. I miss yeah. every dinner time with the kids. I'm working every weekend so I can never go for a walk with my partner. Oh, wow. And so, if all it does then is start to shift and you understand, okay, at the moment, if I keep going the way I'm going, I'm not going to get my happy ending. Okay, great. It means maybe I need to specify now each week I'm going to be around for four dinner times with my partner and my children. I love and that. I- and i wear on my phone with me when I do it. And, and you can make it very analytical if you want. If people are that way inclined, put it in your diary. These four things are important because, you know, for me, Mo, like I've done this exercise several times. Like for me, I'm really, really clear on what those things are. You know, for me, each week, if I can spend time with my wife and kids, undistracted time on my ads, if I can have time to pursue my own passions, and if I've done something to meaningfully impact other people in the world beyond myself and my family, that I think on a weekly basis would make me happy. And that's ultimately what I want on my deathbed as well. I want to have had an impact on the world. And it's not just me saying this, Mo, right? Or you saying it. Have you read that book, The Five Regrets of the Dying, Bronny Kerr? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Palliative care nurse has, has spent lots of time with people at the end of life and they consistently tell her the same things, the same regrets. I wish I'd spent more time with my friends and family. I wish I'd worked less. I wish I'd allowed myself to be happy. I wish I'd lived the life. I wish I'd lived my life and not the life other people expected of me. So my hope, Mo, with this conversation, with the work you're doing, and also with my new book is to help people realize hopefully we don't need to wait until some traumatic life event. Hopefully we don't need to wait until our deathbed to realize what's truly important. And frankly, all the research shows us that number one is relationships. Relationships, relationships, relationships. That's who we are. And if we're not prioritizing those ones in our life, you know, ultimately we're not going to be happy in the long term. I'm 100% with you. By the way, for
0: everyone listening, yes, perhaps I am aligned, but if you ask me, I at best would write for a couple of hours a day, maybe some days I write three. I could write for five, I could spend five more hours with people I love or with myself. And honestly, compared to the fact that, you know, I don't really work a corporate job fully if you want, I could probably do a lot more. I could probably do a lot better on the stuff that I'm doing. And I think what we just said in terms of putting it in your agenda, putting it in your calendar for hours with my, or for uh, dinners with my family or whatever, I think this truly is something that even the most aligned of us, can benefit from doing more. And I I really, really believe in that. Rangan, I wanna go back to the book, but I have to, to talk about a very controversial point, which I know you're very vocal about, you just mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation, which is the idea that it is our lifestyle that gets us to where we are. And that while modern medicine is sort of about fixing you when the system has broken, that changes to a human's lifestyle can actually prevent you from going to the mechanic in the first place. And you're public about this, even though your formal study is the study of medicine. It's like, you know, when your machine breaks, come to me, I'll change the hose and you'll be fine. Is there science that proves this more and more? Is there a move in the medical community to say, maybe, maybe we shouldn't wait for people to break down?
1: Yeah, definitely. This this movement is growing all the time. There's more and more doctors who are either led to this perspective because of their own health concerns. This is what you often see, they have their own health concerns, and then they're like, What well, I have to take this medication every day for the rest of my life. And they're like, Surely there must be another way. Right? It's often in that moment they start to reflect on Is this the only way there is to help someone? Or It's because they just have this frustration that they are just prescribing pills all the time and the patients keep coming back and they keep coming back sometimes with symptoms a bit better, sometimes with side effects of those pills, or sometimes the pills don't even help. There was one case, Mo, in Doctor in the House in the second season. One of the ladies, she was called Nicola, who was on the show, and I think this episode is still on YouTube. She was on 20 pills a day When I saw her, she had eight different diagnoses, irritable bowel syndrome, depression, fibromyalgia, chronic pain, all kinds of things. She had just acquired and picked up new diagnoses each year and new pills. And she'd been been to all the top specialists. She was in chronic pain. She couldn't work. She could barely be a mother to her children. Within six weeks, she was pain-free for the first time in 10 years And then two years later, right? So this wasn't just on the show, like we reduced her medication lows. Two years later, because of the tools I'd helped empower her with, she was taking zero pills a day and she was completely pain-free. And she sent me a photo at the top of a local hill that she'd hiked with her three kids and her husband. And she just said, look, I just want to say thank you. I couldn't do this for 10 years. And I've, I've got up now with nothing. And I used that You think, or it may sound like that's an extreme case. It really is not. Because you've got to understand, hey, I'm all for modern medicine, right? If I have a heart attack, I want to go to the best emergency room, the best A&E. If I get knocked down by a car and I have a traumatic injury, I, I want to go and get the very best modern medicine has to offer. The tools that we are taught in medical school are brilliant for some of our conditions, but they're not brilliant for everything. And the problem is the health landscape of the UK, the health landscape of the world has changed. 40, 50 years ago, the majority of what we saw as medical doctors was there were acute problems. They responded very well to this one pill for every ill model. So let's say 50 years ago, you had a really bad cough and a fever and you were bringing up green spit and mucus. You go see a doctor The doctor examines you and says, yeah, you have a really bad chest infection. You've got a pneumonia, okay? I'm going to give you this antibiotic that will kill the bug that's causing that pneumonia. Brilliant. Seven days later, the problem's gone away. You've got rid of the pneumonia. You feel good again. Modern medicine at its best. The problem is we try and apply that kind of approach to these kind of chronic environmentally and lifestyle-driven problems And it doesn't work in the same way. And another way people can really think of this is stress is a term that we use a lot in society. We're using it all the time, this term. Yeah, I was stressed. Oh, I'm feeling a bit stressed. But what is stress, right? Because the World Health Organization, three or four years ago, before the last two years, they had on their website, stress is the health epidemic of the 21st century, right? Stress is real. When we are experiencing chronic stress, every single organ system in your body changes, right? We don't realize that when we're overworking or we create emotional stress in our body by getting annoyed by people's emails or the actions of other people. But stress is real. And stress signals to your body that I'm in danger, as if there was a tiger approaching your camp a million years ago. So what does your body do it changes its physiology. Your blood sugar goes up so you can run faster. Your blood pressure goes up so you can deliver more sugar to your brain. Your blood becomes more prone to clotting so that if you are attacked by a wild predator, your blood's gonna clot and you're not gonna bleed to death, right? Your your amygdala, the emotional part of your brain goes on to high alert so you're hypervigilant for everything around you. All of that stuff is brilliant for 30 minutes when there really is a stressful situation. But if it's your daily life that's stressing you out, if it's your email inbox that's stressing you out or your workload or by the fact that you never have any time to yourself, any time to sit in silence with your thoughts because you're just consuming Instagram and Facebook and social and news all the time, well, that stress response has been activated day in, day out and your body. So those things that help us in the short term become highly problematic. So that's why you can make a link between chronic unmanaged stress and pretty much every single chronic health problem that we have that is crippling healthcare systems. And we're not going to fix it by better health care and disease care. That's not how we're going to fix this problem. We fix it by helping not judge people, not by making them feel bad, but by compassionately saying, hey, guys, listen, that's another way here. Sure, use modern medicine when you need to, but don't forget these small changes can really make a big, big difference.
0: I mean, it's not new. I mean, this is what, for example, Chinese medicine was advocating a long time ago, right? The challenge, I, I and I am going to be a bit too blunt here. <laughs> Yes, there are so many ways for a doctor or a coach in that case, if you think about it, to help patients or to help humans not become patients. There are not many ways for a doctor to make money, I think is the challenge, other than prescribing pills. And so at the very core of the system, there is something wrong because you know if you've if you've read i'm sure you have uh, free economics the motive of the medical establishment in terms of making money is centered around patients getting sick and then being prescribed pills or surgeries
1: yeah it's a great point and i think in some countries this is even more problematic than in others one thing i want to say here is i genuinely believe that most healthcare professionals most doctors Go into the profession with a desire to help people. Totally. I really, really do believe that. But I think, as you've just so eloquently pointed out, the system and the model is working against them. And it is very, very hard to break out and push back against that model because the way in America, the way they get reimbursed, but even in the UK, you know, even though it's not seen in the same way, because It's so-called free healthcare. It's not free healthcare at all, but people, yes, it's free at the point of service, but this is not free healthcare. And we're not taught the creation of health, right? We're not taught that. We're taught the diagnosis of disease, right? We're taught how all these different symptoms, what they mean. And if you have this collection of symptoms, you have this label. If you have this collection of symptoms, you have this label. And then once you've got your label, you can then be given the right pharmaceutical drug to treat it. That has value. That absolutely has value. But yeah, and this is what I'm trying to fight against and raise awareness in society through TV, books, podcasts, but also, you know, just in answer to your previous question, you know, are things changing? Yes. Because one example is this course that myself and a colleague run it's called prescribing lifestyle medicine. Right, this has got full Royal College of GP accreditation, right? We have had thousands of doctors do it now, not just GPs, specialists as well, cardiologists, endocrinologists, psychiatrists. We've had doctors all over the world do this and 95% of people who do this course say it has significantly changed the way they practice because another point that people misunderstand, though, a, yes, prevention is really important. No question. And the model of healthcare is not set up around prevention. It's set up around disease. But lifestyle is not just prevention. Even when you have got a disease, actually making lifestyle changes can often improve your symptoms, can often reduce how much medication you need to take. And in some occasions, you can actually reverse it. Not always, but in some cases, like type 2 diabetes, for example, that yeah. can be reversed by making changes to your lifestyle. So I'm, I'm all for empowering people. Like I'm not here to tell people what to do, right? With my patients, I give them an option. I, I will say, hey, look, I can give you this medication. Let's say it's type 2 diabetes. I can give you this medication that's going to help keep your blood sugar down a little bit. Now, just to be clear, it's not getting to the root cause of this. It's not going to help you reverse this, but I can give you that if you want. But if you're interested, I can also help you with some other things. And when you are compassionate to your patients, when you don't talk down to them, when you treat them as equals, you know what? Almost all of them say, hey, doc, you know, can you tell me a little bit about some of those other things? What is there anything that I can do that might make a difference here? And so I think the the way in which we communicate with our patients as well is so, so important. And I think it's undervalued, underappreciated, and I don't think the system really allows many doctors to develop that deep relationship that is so, so important, especially when talking about these chronic lifestyle-driven problems.
0: Yeah, but I'll, I'll say to our listeners, that this is your personal choice as well, to recognize that prevention is so much more powerful and that lifestyle choices do make a difference, right? And so yes, like uh, Ranjit just said, you can and you should use modern medicine, but also consider that the reason for your illness sometimes It's not external. It's not a a germ coming from outside you. It's a choice of a lifestyle that you're adopting. And so accordingly, thinking about those things really matter. Let's get to your book, which is a fantastic, fantastic book, an absolute must read, everyone. So I submerge my life in happiness. And Ranjan's latest book is about happiness from a a doctor's point of view, really. So take us through this. It's out already, isn't it? Uh, in the UK and an audio, I think.
1: Yeah, the audio book we put out a little bit early. I think people are struggling at the moment a lot, and the audiobook was ready. That's a piece of technology, so we put it, it, it out a few weeks. Yeah, I read it. I read it myself. I, I read all my books myself. Uh, yeah. For me, it's really important to do that. The paperback, you know, is out in the UK March the thirty first, but in America and Canada it's out on June the fourteenth, but. But Mo, you know, this is my fifth book in five years. And honestly, of course, I'm biased because I've spent most of the year writing it. But like, I genuinely believe in my heart that this is not only the best book that I've written, I think it's the most important book that I've ever written.
0: I will agree. I mean, not not to say that the others were any less. For our listeners, I, I think all of your books were uh, bestsellers, Sunday Times bestsellers and, yeah. and international bestsellers. I believe this one is is going to be your biggest, honestly. And I think from an impact
1: point of view as well. And it plays into what we've been talking about throughout this conversation, Mo, this, this idea about lifestyle, right? So as a doctor, I'm always trying to figure out what's the root cause of why this patient is sitting in front of me, right? So why, what has been going on in their life over the last few weeks, months, and years that means today, at this time right now, they're presenting to me asking for help. And often it's not really about that symptom that they come in with. Often it's actually Mm. a combination of factors that have been building up for many years that they've never paid attention to. And then they only come in when when it really is impacting their life. And for many years, as I've already mentioned, I've said that most of this comes down. For most of us, not everyone, and there are conditions out there which are to do with genetics and we can be really unlucky, no question. But for most people, it's to do with the way that we're living. But I've been wondering for a few years, is there anything that's even more root cause than our lifestyle? Is there anything that's even more upstream? And as I thought about my patients, as I went into the research, I've come to the conclusion that there is. It's our happiness, right? It's how happy we are in our lives and with our lives that hugely determines our health. Now, there's two main reasons for this. One reason I think it's relatively obvious for people to grasp when they think about it. When you feel happier and more content and more peaceful with your life, you are less likely to make poor lifestyle choices. In fact, you're a lot more likely to make good Mm. choices. You're less likely to need to comfort eat and dive into the ice cream or the biscuits at 3 p.m. in the afternoon to get you through if you feel calm and content. You're less likely to need to drown your sorrows in half a bottle of wine every night if you feel pretty good about things. So often lifestyle, and this is one of the problems I have with a lot of public health messaging, I think it's too dry. Like alcohol, you should not drink more than this amount of units per week. Okay, fine, they have to give some guidance. But I find it too dry and unemotional. People don't change because of rational arguments. They change when you connect with their hearts through stories. So I have an issue with how we deliver public health guidelines anyway, which is why I think a lot of the time they're not that helpful. But it also doesn't recognize, let's take alcohol for a minute. Alcohol usually, someone's alcohol consumption is usually, not always, it's a behavior that they partake in to help them deal with something else in their life. It helps them cope with stress or numb the discomfort because they don't enjoy their day-to-day job, whatever it might be. So I found with my patients, it's very helpful to say, look, all behaviors serve a role. If I'm going to help you change that behavior, let's first of all figure out what role does it play in your life? Like if you are using alcohol to help you manage stress, Can we find another way to manage stress that doesn't involve Mm. alcohol rather than just say, stop the alcohol? So the first way that health and happiness are connected is happier people make better lifestyle choices. But it's not just that, Mo. There's also research showing that independent of lifestyle, happier people have better physical health. And the best study that really showed this was a study of nuns over their entire lives, right? These nuns had the same lifestyle, same diets, same exercise, same sleep, right? So you can't differentiate them because of that. And when they looked at them, the nuns who were happier, they were healthier and they lived significantly longer. So we know that your mood, your positive emotions it's massively connected with your health. Another study showed that you can take rhinovirus, which is the virus that causes the common cold. And literally scientists did this. They took two groups of people into a lab. They injected rhinovirus up people's nostrils. And then they saw who would get sick. Was it the, the not-so-positive mood people or the positive mood people? The not-so-positive mood people got sick three times more. Three incredible. times more. Yeah. And this is why I'm so passionate about this moment, why I really put my heart and soul into this book is because this link between happiness and health is not appreciated with the public. It's not appreciated with wider society. And it's definitely not appreciated within my profession. And I wanted to shine a light on it and go, it's not just physical lifestyle choices. It's our happiness. It's our mental well-being. It's the way we think. It's how we deal with adversity, how we approach the world. And I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Gabal Mate. He's this incredible Vancouver-based doctor. He's an addiction specialist. I've had him on my show twice. He is such an incredible human being. And one of his books shows clearly the link between people. I, th- I really want people to hear this, that this idea that if you get angry a lot, if you allow the actions of other people to overly affect you when you hold on to emotional tension, resentment, if you can't forgive people, well, you can have the best diet in the world and the best exercise regime in the world. But those factors are associated with an increased risk of cancer, autoimmune disease, heart disease, stroke. So this is really trying to take this holistic approach and go, health is not just one thing, it's multiple things. And I've spoken for years and written about lifestyle and now I want to take it up a notch and go, okay, yeah, lifestyle's important, but even if you've got that cracked, there may be a few things going on that actually you want to start addressing.
0: Is, is that is that related to what you were talking about before also, the, the stress response thing, that your yeah. body is out of tune when you're in those moods that are not happy? It's almost like when you're happy, this is the time for you to rest and digest your food and do other stuff. Exactly.
1: Right? You've nailed it. Your physiology changes. This is not just emotional stress. In fact, in some ways, the body doesn't know the difference between physical stress and emotional stress. And this kind of emotional, psychosocial stress, it is, it is literally what is killing so many of us in society. I'm convinced that that in many ways helped kill my dad. I honestly I truly believe do believe that. That's why he got lupus at 59 and had kidney failure. And so I have a, yes, I've got a professional a desire to bring this to the public, but I've got a personal one as well. I think my dad went far too early. Yeah, it's it's so interesting that you
0: say this, Rangan. I don't know if you know that. So so the first time I admit to this, I actually the first time I discovered this was when I was writing my next book. My next book is coming out in on May 26th, which is the reason why I fight unhappiness with such vengeance, is because I lost my dad to unhappiness, right? And I didn't know that. I didn't know that. This is why I, I sort of almost get angry when someone I, I love is unhappy for the wrong reasons or that their brains are taking them to a place where it's unnecessarily unhappy, if you know what I mean. And we're, we're very similar in that, you and I. I think when the fight is motivated by a personal passion, if you want, or a personal reason, it becomes uh, a lot more committed. It's, uh, you know, it's not just a job.
1: Yeah, and, and I think this whole idea of happiness... I think it gets a bad rap these days. Like a lot of people think we shouldn't be talking about happiness, that happiness is not the goal, it's meaning or purpose. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I agree. I think I think we all do want happiness, but I think we have to be careful with what we mean by that because I think Absolutely. happiness is a term that 10 different people will hear it and it will land in their minds in 10 completely different ways. Absolutely. And so that's why I spend a lot of time in the introduction. I say a lot of time. One of the things I'm proudest of with this book is I've I really try to work on and discipline myself, which I always try and do is to keep things simple, keep it moving, keep it readable. You don't want to oversimplify, but how can you distill a complex idea down to its essence? I know, yeah. It's the challenge I always set myself because often I find when I'm writing longer books, which, well, I've never really done because I realized early on with my first book that two weeks into writing it, this is five years ago, I remember asking myself myself, Hey, who are you writing this for? Are you writing it for your ego, or are you writing it to help people? Because in it, I was <laughs> putting all these studies, question. I was putting all these studies in and research. And I thought, oh, doctors are going to love this, and I'm going to show them that I know this. And I thought, wait a minute, get clear on your values. If your goal is to help people, write it in a way that people can read it, they can enjoy it, they can understand it, and then apply it
0: i love this ring,
1: and this is the right way to do it really yeah i i i think it is but you know there is an ego part of you which thinks and it's still there although it's a lot better there's a part of me which thinks i feel i've really simplified these concepts down and whenever i'm sending it to let's say esteemed colleagues of mine I always feel I have to justify. Hey, go- you know, guys, I've just I've really tried to simplify this because <laughs> I've still got this this yeah, yeah. issue what, in my head that me? yeah, yeah. What will they think of me? I'm a lot better than I was, but I'm certainly not not quite there yet. I think they'll think of you as an author. Yeah, so- <laughs> exactly. And the other thing <laughs> I've learned not a is, that- uh,
0: anymore, but uh, but an author, right? This is the job of an author.
1: I, I spoke to um, Daniel Pink last week. He came to the studio. And uh, we had a uh, we had a chat. It's not come out yet on the podcast. It come out in the next couple of weeks, I think. But at the end, he said something like, "You know, when you're worrying about what other people are thinking of you, just take a moment to realise they're not. <laughs> they're not." And and I and I thought, you know, what well, we are also wrapped up on our own problems. So going back to happiness, you know, this idea that I. I feel that much as society gets happiness wrong, we think it's that kind of billboard image of the the smiling couple with the beach behind them and their children, and yeah. they've all got smiles on their face. And hey, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, But to me, that's a pleasurable experience. That doesn't necessarily mean that's happiness. And I think if we think that's the goal, then we've got a real problem. So my model of happiness, which I spent a long time trying to think about, I mean, you're an author yourself, you know what it's like, you're trying to come up with that what's that core idea? What's Mm. that central theme that can glue all these other ideas together throughout the book? And when I came up with this idea of core happiness, I was really, really pleased. I thought, I think this is a genuinely practical definition that people can take around with them in their back pocket and figure out why certain things in their life feed them and make them happier and why other things actually take away from their feelings of well-being. And I want people to think of core happiness like a three-legged stool. And each of these legs is separate, but essential. So if you're working on one or two of them, that's great. But if you're neglecting one of them, your feelings of happiness will start to collapse. So I think it's a quite a rounded approach. And these three legs are alignment. Alignment is when your inner values and your external actions match up. So when the person who you really want to be in your heart and the person who you are actually being out there in the world are one and the same that's alignment the second leg is contentment what are the things that you can do in your life that give you that sense of peace and calm are you at peace with those things in your life and your decisions that's kind of contentment and then the third leg is control and i thought long and hard about this this word cuz i thought the word the word control could be misinterpreted. It might rub some people up the wrong way. And I, I've i tested it out with patients and people. And I, and I I decided to keep it because control is very important. It's not about controlling the world, right? The world is inherently uncontrollable. We've seen it with what's going on in the world now, what's been going on in the last few years. We cannot control the world. I'm talking about a sense of control. What are the things that you can do in your life that give you a sense of control. Because we know from the research, people who have a sense of control, they have higher academic success, they have higher motivation, they have reduced feelings of stress, reduced anxiety, they live longer, and they're happier. So it's a very simple and practical framework that, that basically, you know, underpins the whole book. The book has got these kind of 10 chapters, there's 10 principles, not rules, I never want to tell people what they have to do. The 10 principles. And I contend that basically anybody, no matter who you are, whether you feel stressed out or close to burnout at the moment, or whether you feel, you know what, life's okay, but I kind of feel there's something missing. There could be something more. I honestly believe that you apply one of these life lessons just a little bit in your life, you will be happier than you currently are. Apply several of them, you're going to be significantly happier than you currently are. And I still apply these lessons. It's not as if I've written this book and now I'm an All expert it, on yeah. happiness. Yeah. No, yeah. it's like it's like what you said about that exercise before that we shared. Just because I know it and I've written it down doesn't mean I'm perfect every week. In fact, this week I have finished work quite late. The last few nights, you know, yes, I'm gearing up for a book launch. Yes, i am got a lot of work I need to do before I go on tour. Sure. But I've missed the last three dinner times with my wife and kids. Now, that's the first time in a long time I've done that. So these tools are not a stick to beat yourself up with. They're practical tools that you can constantly use to reorientate the compass of your life. You know things will always going to change, right? sometimes life will be stressful and you will neglect those things. But if you have the awareness, you're like, hey, you know, last week I wasn't so good at that. I'm going to make sure next week I finish work on time every day because otherwise one week is going to become two weeks and three weeks and four weeks. And um, I heard heard this morning, I was listening to a podcast, Mo, and I was hearing about Warren Buffett. Mm. And, you know, investing is not my world. But something I heard reminded me of this little section I wrote in chapter one, which is worshipping the wrong heroes. And I heard and you know I'm not a, a Warren Buffett expert you may know more about this than me but for all his wealth and for all his uh, I think talent in investing I heard this morning that apparently there were real problems in his family life and his relationships his entire life like I don't know if that's completely accurate but that's what I heard this morning and I had this concept that I've been thinking about a lot called worshiping the wrong heroes we We worship the wrong people in society. Example for me, as a kid, I idolized Tiger Woods, like completely idolized Tiger. And just to be clear, I think he's an incredible sportsman whose talent is incredible. But the problem is, is that if you're going to idolize Tiger Woods, you really need to idolize every part of him. So you also need to idolize the broken marriage, the painkiller addiction, the personal struggles, that's part of tiger. You can't just take one you know narrow aspect of his life and say, "I want to be Tiger Woods." So many of us think we want to be Tiger Woods, but we don't, right? I may want a golf swing like Tiger Woods, but let's be honest. A, I probably don't have the talent. B, I don't have eight hours a day to practice. so that is that's an idolization that has zero relevance to my life. Like zero relevance, and just to be clear right, I'm not condoning what he's done, and frankly, I don't judge people. it is not my place to either condone or not condone it, right He did what he did. He is a fallible human just like I am, right And what I've realized more and more mo, and there's a and chapter five really covers this for people, and that's probably my favorite chapter in the book, this idea is that if I had Tiger's upbringing, I'd probably have done the same as him. Absolutely. If I had if no childhood, the same parents, yeah, if I had the, same, the parents, same
0: parents, same background, same if beliefs, I had no social life, if I never yeah. had
1: any girlfriends growing up, and then suddenly I'm a, the richest sportsman in the world in my mid-20s, being exposed to all kinds of temptations, well, a lot of us would probably make challenging decisions. So uh, what I'm saying is I'm not criticizing him. I'm saying, be careful with who you choose to idolize. And honestly, these days, may one of my idols, and again, we don't need to say idol, someone who I really look up to, it's my father-in-law, right? Mm-hmm. That, I, when I tell your
0: wife about that, I think you're going to get quite a few points for it. So we're going to replay that over dinner.
1: <laughs> she knows it because, like, there's a whole section in the book on values, about getting clear on what your values are. Now, my three core values at this time in my life are compassion, curiosity, and integrity. In fact, those three values are at the top of my Instagram profile. I want the world to lead with values, not with, oh, I've done this, I've done that. It's like, I'm like, no, no, these are my values. That's the first thing you're gonna read about me before you you hear anything else. And my father-in-law, he's been through all kinds of struggle in life. He used to live in Kenya, he had successful businesses. They lost it overnight when the coup happened in 1982 comes to the UK, failed businesses, but then runs a corner shop for like 30 years to give his family a life. And here's the thing about my father-in-law. I have never, ever seen him raise his voice to anyone. He's always got the most biggest smile that will light up any room. He's always kind. He never lets the actions of other people bother him. He always seems so chilled. You always feel better after seeing him than beforehand. And I think, well, that's probably the picture I should have up on my wall rather than Tiger Woods. That, that has real relevance to my life. Like, those are the qualities I want to bring into my life. And so I kind of think society has a bit of an issue where we, we worship the wrong people and we worship one tiny aspect of them. And the other thing I've learned, Mo, is that there's often a huge cost exactly. to this success. Exactly. That's a huge cost
0: or consequence. So this is so eye opening. I just finished brilliant, brilliant book, Happy Sexy Millionaire by uh, Stephen Bartlett. Stephen, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's brilliant. This young man is amazing, and and one of one of the topics about worshiping the wrong heroes is the idea that simply. First of all, what you see is not all the truth. Second is, by definition, my lifestyle, even as a hopefully a good man and a kind man and so on, but being in the spotlight has consequences, right? Getting to being top of Google in my career, you know, being chief business officer, it had costs. And the reality is that you cannot separate those. You cannot say, hey, I want to be like Mo and be chief business officer of Google X, but I don't want to travel every week right? You wouldn't become that if you don't do this. And I think the reality is, yeah, I mean, may have been very successful in that career, but what did it cost me? It cost me time that I could have spent with Ali that I didn't spend right? It cost me tension that has impacted on my life that I could have removed. And these are the things that people don't realize when they worship a part of an idol, especially when that idol is an Instagram influencer, where you really don't know much about their life other than the pictures that you have on the screen. And it's just, it's a big way of wasting your potential really to try and be like them.
1: Yeah, it it really is. And it's something as a parent myself, it's something, you know, that we talk about a lot. You know, I talk to the kids about this kind of stuff all the time. In fact, I'd say my kids help me write because whenever I'm going through this stuff and I'm struggling, I say, at dinner time, hey guys, you know, help me out here. You know, I'm trying to make sense of this. And they know how to be happy, right? Kids know it. It's it's kind of schooled out of them by by school, by society. And I'm trying my best to almost unschool them every time they come home and every weekend we spend together. And really this understanding that we're all complex humans. We're all made up of, you know, we're all multifaceted. And I do think social media is making this problem worse because I've met so many influencers have contacted me and I've met them and they're, they're miserable and depressed and they say, I can't live up to this image that I've curated online. That's their business, so they have to keep doing that. But on the inside, they're literally destroying themselves. And it all comes down to this same thing. You know, you need to know your values. You need to understand the difference between success and happiness. And you also need to understand, Mo, And I think this is a really, this is one of the key points that I want to get across to people, is that it doesn't matter what you've done up until this point. We cannot undo the past. We've all made decisions in life that we might choose to do differently if we had our time again. Don't stress about that. Don't worry about that. You can make a change wherever you are in your life. And please understand this, that happiness is a skill that you can develop, you can get better at. It is not this kind of ethereal concept that one day you're just going to stumble across by chance. No, that's the point of me writing this book to show people this is practical just like if you um, just as if you go to the gym every day and lift uh, you know do bicep curls, you are going to have bigger biceps there's, there's no question about that. well, if you work on the three legs of this core cool happiness tool that I outline in the book, you are going to become happier and it's not about always having a smile on your face it's about understanding the best way to interact with the world, if you're waiting for the world around you to act in a certain way in order for you to be happy, and you're going to be waiting a long time, right? Happiness <laughs> is an inside job. You need yeah. to understand. You were, never, you were probably never taught this. I was not taught this at school. I was not taught this by my parents. I was not taught this by society. But I, I hope, you know, like you, Mo, in your books, I hope through this book to teach people that, oh my God, this is a practical skill. I could, if I do this regularly, like a really simple one, a really simple one is talk to strangers every day. I do that. I love it. Right. The There's a whole chapter ever. on this and there is such good research. Relationships are important. Of course, deep, meaningful relationships are important, but these, but these kind of almost superficial interactions that we have with people we don't know that well, they feed who we are. What do they do? There's a part of your brain called the sociometer right? And it basically scans your external environment to check whether you are safe, right? And this is the amazing thing. If you, let's say you order a coffee at a coffee shop, and you smile at the barista, say, hey, thanks, this is a really nice coffee, how's your day? And they smile back at you. We know from research, you feel happier in that moment, and those feelings last for the entire day right? There's all kinds of research on this, which probably if there was longer, I'd I'd definitely go through with you. But essentially, what does that do through the lens of the core happiness stool? Well, these positive interactions let you know that the world's a safe place. Oh, my social world is safe. So you feel a sense of control. You don't feel out of control because there's enemies everywhere. So it feeds your core happiness. So a simple thing for people. And of course, extroverts like you and me probably find this easier. But even if we were to increase it, we'd become more happy. But even if an introvert just says hi to the postman and thank you, or when the Amazon delivery driver comes, instead of just taking the box saying, oh, thank you so much. you know, How's, how's your day going? Anyway, I hope you have a good one. And they say something back. We know from the science that these things really make a, a difference. You know, the, the psychologists who studied this they call this vitamin S, the social <laughs> vitamin. So just yeah. as if you wanna take your, you know, your vitamin C or your vitamin D each day with your breakfast, well, you can also get your vitamin S each day by talking yeah. to
0: strangers. Well, you got me wrong there. I am the ultimate introvert. No way. <laughs> yes, I'm a, a very well-trained extrovert. But if you leave me alone, I'll spend the rest of my life in a cave somewhere. No, but I have to say, I, so I, I went through this by learning. And I, my, my tip, honestly, even if you're an introvert, is talk to the low-risk strangers, learn to talk to the low risk strangers, right? So if I'm a Middle Eastern man with a with a beard, if a stunning supermodel stands behind me, there is very high risk there, I can't talk to her, right? It's like, what will she think of me? But you know, the old lady in front of me in the supermarket, if I just step forward and carry her stuff and put it on the belt and talk to her and tell her how cute she is, I can do that even as an introvert. I can talk to the barista even as an introvert. I can talk to people that don't seem like high risk people that will not judge you. And then very quickly, I believe life corresponds, life responds, life really, really, really gives you what you set your mind to. So very quickly you find it much easier to talk to everyone including the supermodel. And then in my case, actually life became so generous because of the work I've done on happiness. I get so many people reaching out on social media and I choose to make it human, right? So I rarely ever, you know, if I have a million messages and I have to respond to everyone quickly, I may answer a quick response like I'm glad you read my book or whatever. But generally I actually engage in a conversation brief as it is with a voice note. It makes their day, the person that sent my message and believe it or not, it makes my day. It makes my day to feel connected to a human. Often they send back a message in a voice message as well. And it's wonderful. It's just those tiny little connections that I think really, really, it's vitamin S, as you rightly said. It just, yeah, makes you feel human,
1: honestly. And that speaks to, I think, a wider point about happiness that I think we get wrong sometimes. Instead of thinking, like, I I can't quite define it. I don't know what it is. Will I ever be happy? That's difficult that doesn't feel practical we feel out of control that that's our definition of happiness what i'm trying to show people is that no there are practical things that, that you can do each day that they're not it's i don't think happiness is necessarily something you you actively go after itself i'm trying to say actually no there are some principles do these things regularly and you will find The side effect is that you feel happier, right? Happiness is almost a byproduct of doing these things. Like it's not a final destination that you will one day get to. It's a process. And I know you agree with me on this. It's a choice. It's saying, I'm sure, I hope people who listen to this podcast and know your work, Mo, I hope they're already that way inclined that actually happiness is a choice. That does not mean people are not going through difficult times and difficult periods all over the world and there isn't struggle. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that even in difficult moments, you can make a different choice with how you view this. You really can. One of the most powerful conversations I've had in my life was when I spoke to Dr. Edith Eger on my podcast. Oh, mine too.
0: Mine too. One of the most impactful conversations of my
1: life. I think about it every day. Because- When I spoke to a 93-year-old lady, this was maybe a year, year and a half ago, when she was 16, she's getting excited. She's got a date, I think, with her boyfriend that night. They get a knock on the door. Her, her sister, and her parents get put on a train to Auschwitz. She said she didn't even know what it was at the time. Within a few hours of getting there, her parents are murdered. She's there for many years. And there's so much I could tell you about that conversation. I'm sure you've had similar themes in yours. But two things that really stand out to me were firstly, she said, you know, when I was in Auschwitz, I wasn't the prisoner. I looked at the prison guards as the prisoners. They were the ones who were not living their life. In my mind, I was free. I thought, okay, wow. In the absolute hell of Auschwitz, you were able to reframe a situation that works better for you, like what I call a happiness story, right? And then she said, and we had a long, long conversation. It was it was just so wonderful. She's such a kind, compassionate, forgiving human being. But she said to me at the end, Rogan listen, I have been and lived in Auschwitz for years, but I can tell you the greatest prison you will ever live inside is the prison you create inside your mind. And I think about that every day. Whenever I run the risk of having a small matter become big, I just think, wait a minute, Rongan. That's another perspective you could take on the same situation. There's always more than one perspective. And that's why chapter five in my book is my favorite, because it's about how you can use social friction with other people each day to not wish that they could be different, but to learn something about yourself. Why did I get triggered? What can I do differently? How can I write a different story about this event? And if I'm ever struggling, which is pretty rare these days, because I've, I've worked at this for several years, so now I'm pretty good at reframing very quickly. I'm not perfect, but, I'm, but I can't remember the last time I got stuck in a negative spiral and wasn't able to reframe something, because, it, I, I, again, I've skilled, I've got better at it. I think, wrong If Edith Eger can reframe in Auschwitz. <laughs> exactly. You can reframe right here. Absolutely.
0: I think we should probably leave people a few seconds to think about this, right? Because honestly, what in your life today compares to her experience of being in Auschwitz, observing minutes after she lands there or she arrives there, that they take her mother to the gas chamber in front of her eyes. What in your life compares to this? Okay, And if she can reframe this, what in your life can you not reframe? What in your life can you not see the the positive, the good side of? I'll have to also double down on a comment that you just said, Rangan, that that you don't remember the last time you got stuck in negativity. That's not because your life is all positive. By the way, I'm in the same place, right? And I get, if I tell people what happened in my startup in the last two and a half years, I promise you, you would not believe your ears. You wouldn't believe what I'm telling you. It's a, It's been an incredible story of stress. I rarely ever got stuck in any negativity for more than 20 minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, right? And believe it or not, when I'm able to do that, I'm able to solve the issues a lot quicker. I'm able to actually make a positive difference to my life instead of sitting there and doing nothing.
1: Yeah, and it's so incredible to hear that. And And I would just add to that, you say if it does happen, it would just be for up to twenty minutes. That's because we're human, right? We're not saints. Things are always going to happen. But what I feel you've got, Mo, and what I've developed over the last few years is awareness. So if I'm going into that pattern, I catch it. I'm like, ah, okay, oh, okay, cool. All right, let's back up here. Let's back a bit. Let's let's choose a different story here. So awareness is huge. I think that's that's the first thing I wanted yeah. to say. Yeah. And then. What you said about making better decisions, going back to what we said about the stress response, well, there's a very simple biological explanation as to why that happens. You can think of your brain as being in broadly two parts. The front, the prefrontal cortex, which is thought to be the logical, rational part of your brain. That's how we make good, considered decisions. And then you've got the primitive part of your brain, the emotional brain, which is very, very old, and it's concerned with fear and keeping you alive if you are getting stressed about all the stress in your startup or your business or your work life or your relationship or whatever it is, right, and you're really feeling that stress, first of all, don't beat yourself up. But let me just explain what's happening there. Stress switches off the front part of the brain. So your prefrontal cortex goes offline and then your emotional brain is running the roost. Nobody makes good decisions at that point. So actually, if your happiness is not a good enough reason to put into practice some of the principles we're talking about. Do it for your work. Do it for better productivity. <laughs> exactly. Right? It's good for you. It's good for you. It's better for your business and it's better for your income and whatever you're doing in life. It's a superpower when you get it, and I promise you, it is easier than you think. All you have to do is start practicing. So I'm, I'm going to close with a
0: with an awareness bit. I don't know if you've noticed this, Rang, and so. If you really look at your book, first of all, it's such an interesting, different perspective. Even though the practices and the beliefs are the same from your approach to mine, your perspective is so interestingly different. Okay. You're almost looking, you know, that game of the elephant. You're looking at the elephant from a very different angle. And I love that. And it's been really enriching for me to see you take my, not you didn't take, but using the same Lego bricks that I used to build a happy life and combining them differently in different categories is so eye opening but as i looked at your book in its entirety as a big picture it's about being a good person did you ever see that are you saying that being a good person makes us happier be nice to others talk to others align yourself with your values so many components of it align yourself with your inner self you know become aware all of these are things that actually lead you to live a good life, to be a good person. It's so
1: interesting, isn't it? I've not thought about it in those terms, but as you say it, it resonates really deeply with me because it's not only being kind to other people or doing things for others or talking to strangers. It's also about seeing everyone else in the best light that you can. Absolutely right? And that's what this whole reframing thing is about, that imagine if you were them, you would be behaving in exactly the same way. If you were that person with their childhood experiences, with their bullying, with their parents, with their teachers, with their first boss who wasn't very kind to them, if you were them, you'd have the same opinion as them and you'd be acting that way. It's such a compassionate way to approach the world because I apply that principle. Maybe it's been about two or three years now I've been applying that principle, And it just takes the sting out of life. And you see, you just have this deep sense of compassion for everyone you meet. And actually, coming back to this core happiness stool, Mo, one of the most important legs is alignment, right? When your inner values and your external actions match up, and there's a huge section in the book on authenticity and what it really is. I feel that, yes was my favorite bit to write and why we get sucked into what I call performative authenticity now rather than true authenticity. And I came across this research from, I think it's 2021. We talk about authenticity and true authenticity. And although we're all different as humans, although we live in different countries, we have different beliefs, different thoughts, different family practices. Actually, the research showed that all of us, no matter who we are, feel like we're being our true, authentic selves when we're being kind, when we're being present, when we're doing things for others. Right? So that's who we are, Mo. Society might teach us it's not who we are. It might train us to think that this is a dog-eat-dog world where we have to do better than our peers and the other person in order to get ahead. But I played that game. I've played that game for much of my life and I can tell you, you can get ahead, you can succeed, but it comes with a shallowness and an emptiness inside. And you will fill that emptiness and void with all kinds of other addictive behaviors, whether it is gambling, sugar, three hours on Instagram, pornography, <laughs> drugs, yeah. whatever it is, it all comes, generally speaking, from that void when we're acting in a way that's not who we truly are. And actually, interesting enough, a lot of my addictive tendencies that I've had in my life in the past, like in my 20s, I used to love gambling. But you probably would never call it like a real problem. But I probably didn't have a healthy relationship with it, right? I never gambled my life savings away or anything like that. It was never that I couldn't feed myself, right? But yeah, I'd probably go a little bit more often than I should have done to so the casino. I'd bet on anything I could. It's really interesting, though. I've not tried to stop gambling. I have no need for gambling anymore. I don't think I've gambled in over 10 years now because I've healed the hole inside me. I've closed that gap, that void. I'm now living more and more as the authentic person who I really want to be in the world. And therefore, I have less of a needs for what I call in the book, junk happiness habits that we think are happiness, but they're not really happiness. It's these junk happiness habits that come in. So to answer your question, is kindness to yourself, to the people around you, to wider society, a big part of this book? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think, was it the Dalai Lama who said, if you want to be happy, be compassionate If you want the world to be happy, be compassionate.
0: I think we, uh, you and I can talk for seven hours. I don't know if people have the capacity to listen to us for seven hours. So the next time you wanna listen to me and and my wonderful friend Drangen talk, come to his podcast. So we're planning to record in In May.
1: May. So probably come out end of May and I cannot wait to have you in my studio. And go deep with you.
0: And I am looking forward so much to it. I have to admit, of course, happiness is one of my favorite topics. But I have to admit, every now and again, I get a very interesting new perspective it's just cutting it and shaping it differently. And I have to say, I love the book. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful approach to happiness. I think the three-legged tripod, if you want, or stool, as you call it, for the core happiness is clear and it gets us somewhere. I cannot recommend it enough. So for our listeners, if you can get the paperback or the audio available everywhere already give it a try and i i know for certain that it will benefit you just like this conversation i'm sure benefited you and i love you man i think you're amazing i think the more i spend time with you the more i feel the world is in a good place
1: well the feelings mutual mo i love what you do in the world i'm so glad we connected in person a few weeks ago thanks for inviting me on the podcast thanks for supporting the book and uh Yeah, I can't wait until the next time we get together.
0: So for all of you, if you're listening, if you've enjoyed this as much as I did, please share it with others. I think so many people could benefit from this. By the way, we started to put our podcasts on YouTube as well. So if you want to join us in this little virtual living room that we're in, you can find that on my official channel. So youtube.com slash And uh, yeah, uh, take the time to rate us five stars. We've exceeded 1,000 five stars on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much for that. If you're using Spotify and you haven't rated us five stars already, what are you doing? I mean, if you're here after an hour, 25 minutes, you like this stuff. So tell others that you like it so that they like it too. In any case, I'm very, very grateful for the alibi that you give me to have such wonderful conversations with such amazing people. And I love you all for listening. I hope you will choose a little bit of time to slow down and do what we just spoke about, really uh, prioritize what matters to you, because your health and your happiness depend on your habits I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.